it's really an honor to sit in this room with you. And it's also really an honor to do the groups with everyone and to feel the depth that people are willing to go here. It's just an honor. So today in one of the interview groups, I thought of this poem. I think you'll understand why. This is really for all of us. Light will someday split you open, even if your na- if your life now feels like a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain that you hold the title to. Love will surely break you wide open into an unfettered, blooming new galaxy, even if your mind now feels like a spoiled mule. (laughs) You get why I read it tonight? (laughs) It's all there. This, by the way, I'm, depending on how much time I have tonight, I'll read a few. This is Hafez, trying to pronounce it correctly now after teaching you years of the wrong pronunciation. A, um, one of the Bhakti mystics of the 1300s in the same realm as Rumi and Kabir. <clears throat> so, in these interview groups, we, we hear about... everybody. You know, everybody looks so... Buddha-like sitting in here, and then you go in there and you hear what's going on. And you hear about these minds that feel like spoiled mules. Um, I mean, when I say spoiled, I mean there's a way that mules can be stubborn, which is what he's talking about, doing exactly what they want. And people notice that my mind is just goes sleepy, I go into judgment, I go into guilt, I go into stories. It's just happening and happening. So there's um, all kinds of challenges that can happen when we practice. And there's also, of course, beautiful openings happening and just deep, deep kinds of spacious love and compassion and blessings happening. But tonight, I'm going to talk a bit about ways we might work with some of the difficulties that come. And the angle I'm speaking from is a... um, It's from an interesting angle. The perennial wisdom of the world, meaning uh, in the world's religious scriptures and um, traditional stories and myths and poems, there's archetypal figures that show up in culture after culture after culture, and they represent certain roles. Um, And in the Buddhist scriptures, there's a character, and he's one of these archetypal forces. And I'm calling him a he, because he appears in the scripture as a he. I actually believe it's an it, but I might refer to him as a he tonight because of the story quality. And his name is Mara. Have you heard of Mara? Yeah, we're getting so we've heard of these Buddhist things more. Mara. Hmm. Mara is known sometimes as the evil one or the tricky one. Mara is the one who will... Um, lie to us, who will 
speak to us from inside our head, a little voice inside our head, or will appear as images or forms and do whatever he can think of to prevent us from waking up. Interesting. And that's his job, and that's what he's into. He will tempt us, he'll frighten us, he'll you know, try to make us feel bad about ourselves, what, what, really whatever it takes. So you're starting to see why I might be calling this an it. It could also be called a her in many cases, um, but tonight we'll call him him and it. So out of this, this rich mythology, there are some very powerful images. One of my favorite stories includes Mara. It's the story of the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. The Buddha had done all this spiritual practice and he had this deep sense of readiness for for complete freedom. And so um, he placed his hand on the earth. And when I've been in Asia and seen the depictions of this story, they always refer to it as the goddess earth. So he placed his hand on the goddess earth and he said, with the earth as my witness, I claim my right to complete enlightenment. And he also said, I'm not going to get up from under this Bodhi tree until that happens, so I'll either get enlightened or I'll die, but this is where I'm at. So he was quite certain and determined. And so you're thinking, and this is the Buddha, he would put his hand, he would do that, and then he would get enlightened, right? I mean, it is the night, and he's under the tree. But what happens after he claims this? He's attacked by the Mara's armies. Mara comes at him with everything he's got. He tries to frighten the Buddha. He tries to tempt the Buddha. He tries to convince the Buddha he's not worthy. Who do you think you are to get enlightened? You know, these thoughts, or we'll call them thoughts, or these things were going through the mind of, this is what has come to us through the mythology. The same sort of thoughts that go through our mind. And at one point, this image is that Mara had his legions, thousands of warriors coming at the Buddha, shooting arrows and spears. And the Buddha sat unshaken, in his mindfulness, he knew that this was Mara. And the arrows and the spears turned to flower petals and fell to the ground. So that's just loaded. That little story right there is loaded with power. First of all, he's all ready for enlightenment. What happens? He's attacked. Then he stays centered and the flower petals falling is another classical archetypal image. It shows up all over the world as a sign of blessing, as a sign of something so miraculous and special. So out of Mara can come the blessings, if you pay attention in the right way. So as the story goes on, you might, you know, we've all heard of the Buddha. This is not just an everyday enlightenment. This is one of the world beings, you know, a universal being. This is a big enlightenment. So one would assume the Buddha gets enlightened. So I actually assumed, well, that would be that for Mara, at least for the Buddha. 
right? Does anyone else assume that? But that's not what happened. And this is so important for us to know. After his enlightenment, throughout his long life, Mara kept coming, trying to, trying to win. I mean, he never did, but he kept coming and trying to um, unsuccessfully break the Buddha down, somehow convince him that he couldn't do this or shouldn't do this or wasn't good enough to do it. So if this force called Mara will come to the fully enlightened Buddha over and over, you better believe it's going to come and visit us. That's what these teachings are for, is to teach us this is the path, this is what happens. Uh, So encountering Mara or encountering difficulties is normal. We tend to not... We think there's something wrong when it's happening, but it happens. We, We can sit here and think, God... You know, how can I still be dealing with unworthiness? You know, it's been 30 years now or whatever. How can I still judge my mother? You know, we can, we can really think, I'm supposed to be done with this stuff. And then we judge ourselves. I um, can remember so well, I started um, practicing in my early 20s. And for, I, I would say, almost the whole first decade, a huge amount, not totally, but a lot of my practice was me looking through the, through the swamps of Mara. I mean, when I really think about it, it's amazing I kept going because I was just in so much self-judgment and unworthiness. And, oh, I would sit there thinking, you know, I'm just not Vipassana material. You know, I don't understand this. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. And I would sit in those days in front of a wall, and it, and it was a, a wall of Jewish intellectual males who were my teachers. And I would sit there, this little blonde, bhakti, you know, devotional type, thinking, this is hopeless, you know. So I kept going, and I kept learning how to work with all the incredible self-doubt and um, the many, many forms of Mara. So facing Mara, or difficulty we'll call it, is part of the journey. It's actually not a matter, will this come up? The question is, how will I relate to it when it does come up? I mean, you can all realize it happened several times today. This is not like a big, heavy secret. This is stuff that goes on in all of us all the time. We all know how it feels to be caught in the web. If, you know, we're just sitting here meditating. We're totally locked in to whatever is the trip. And it's painful. And it's so extraordinary to find out and to begin to experience that there is an option. We don't have to just completely identify when I was doing that decade of Mara practice, not that it's all gone now by any means, but it was so dense then, um, I would most usually, when it happened, 
I didn't recognize, oh, this is judgment. I believed it. I'm a horrible person. I believe that's true. You know how we do it? That's the difference. It seems like a small difference, but it's the difference of horrible suffering and peace to see, oh, this, this is just self-judgment instead of, oh, this is actually my sum total of my worth. So we have this option. And the option is to pay attention and to begin to notice this when it starts happening, because it can start in a subtle way or it can be not so subtle at all, and to be mindful and to actually name it. Oh, this is, this is judgment. Oh, this is anger, whatever it is. To be able to be mindful of it is such an incredible difference. We can also learn to be compassionate with ourselves, and we can <coughs> learn, we can cultivate, we can gain <coughs> the courage to, when these forces come, to actually be interested in them. You get to the point where you can actually be curious. I mean, I vividly remember the first time this happened to me. I, many times I had been meditating along and fallen into a dark hole. That was not new for me. But I vividly remember the first time I'm sitting, I drop into a dark hole of despair, and I really genuinely thought, this is interesting. Just that shift. Instead of, oh my God, how do I get out of this term? Wow, this is really interesting. And I actually like, well, what's this? How does this feel? And I was able to Explore it and be present with it. It's a radical it's a radical possibility. So all throughout the suttas, the Buddhist scriptures, there are all these stories of the Buddha and his followers, the monks and nuns, having these many different encounters with Mara. Um, and over and over the same thing keeps happening in these stories, which is that they pay attention, they're mindful. And generally in the stories, because it came through an oral tradition, they're repeated over and over, so they tend to say the same thing in the books. They say, I see you, Mara. <coughs> Meaning, I know what's happening here, I'm paying attention. And when, at whoever it is figures out, I see you, Mara, instead of getting identified, Mara vanishes. But Mara doesn't just vanish. He sulks and slinks away. <laughs> He's so disappointed Every time he's recognized. And so every time it'll say he's so disappointed or he sulked away or he cowered away and then he vanishes. Very mythic. Very, make a good you know, Harry Potter character or something. So um, when it, I'll just tell you a few of these stories. One of the stories, Mara and his daughters are trying to seduce the Buddha. You know, that will do it. And other stories, um, Mara's trying to tempt the Buddha with worldly powers and mountains of gold. You know, if you just come do this, you know. Um, another time, he's trying to frighten the Buddha at night by creating this really scary serpent. Over and over, these things happen. All throughout the life of the Buddha, again and again, he says, I see you, Mara. And Mara is all sad and goes away. So, you know, you're hearing this, you're listening to this, and you might be going, God, you know, seduction fantasies and money schemes. And 
You know, this sounds like my my retreat. (laughs) I recognize this stuff. And um, doubts and self-judgment and, you know, am I good enough and how dare I? The reason it sounds familiar to us is that there's just a little short list. One of our teachers calls it the top ten tunes um, of, of basic difficulties that we humans encounter if we're very seriously going on a meditative or contemplative path. We're going to come across this short list. So the Buddha made, he put, he made lists. If you didn't know that already, he always was making lists. And he made a list of five main categories of, for these difficulties. And these are five main categories where we need to pay extra attention because if we're not paying close attention, they can become hindrances to our practice, which of course is exactly what Mara wants. So the five are sleepiness, restlessness, grasping, aversion, and doubt. So we all know what the feeling of sleepiness and dullness is. Um, I imagine many of you know what the feeling of restlessness is, scattered. Sometimes there's so much restlessness, we can't focus on anything. Our skin just feels like it's crawling with bugs. We just can't sit still. It's restlessness. Um, grasping is this, is this force of, of clinging and trying to hold on. Tangha is, is, is blinding thirst, trying to hold on to what cannot be grasped. You know, to our youth. So, some of you have heard this, but I'm going to read it again because it's so bizarre. Um, this is a little essay written by someone uh, about trying to find a roommate in Marin County and all the interviews that they were going through, interviewing these different people. And this, this, she says, um, this time. Our candidate was a wiry, hostile woman who, named Naomi, shellacked with makeup, who jogged up our steps wearing skin-tight spandex bodysuit and insulated wrist weights. Throughout our meeting, she steadily flexed and straightened her arms so as not to squander valuable workout time. What do you do, Naomi? We asked her. Well, these days, she said, I'm mainly doing my butt. But... <laughs> She said, once you, <laughs> once you pass 35, if you let your butt go, you might as well just pull over to the side of the road and die. <laughs> so I give that as an example in a women's retreat of grasping at the ungraspable. I once read that in a mixed retreat and I was sitting next to Howie, and I said, grasping the ungraspable, and the whole thing with the butt, and it all became out of control. <laughs> anyway, so I now read it at women's retreats. But it's an example of how we attempt to find happiness through that which is actually impermanent. <laughs> the opposite of this force of, form of grasping is aversion. It's pushing away. It's ill will. It's like, if this would only change, if this person would only move, then I'll be happy. It's, it's judgment, and it's anger, and it's, get out of here. I don't like it. Aversion. 
It's another area to pay attention to. And the final one is doubt. And um, we can doubt ourselves or the practice or the Buddha or the teaching or the teachers or the building or the land. You know, it's amazing what we can doubt once we get on a roll with doubt. I was once um, sitting, this is again back in my 20s, and I had total doubt. I was completely doubting every single thing. And I finally, because of an interview, realized and was able to name it doubt at least. But um, I was doubting and believing all the doubt. And then I recognized that doubting was completely paralyzing the practice. I, I couldn't do anything because I doubted it. How could I practice this thing that was so wrong? So um, I just made a decision. I thought, well, okay, I give myself permission to doubt all I want starting at noon on Sunday, the day the retreat ends. And, and between now and then, I'll give up doubting. And of course, then it went away. And by the end of the retreat, when I had all this permission to be in the hindrance of doubting, I was in the hindrance of grasping after how I could go to the next retreat, you know, planning, where will I get the time, where will I get the money? You know, doubt was long gone. So these, um, these are not five mortal sins. You know, they're not five bad things that you shouldn't experience. They're five places to pay attention. And they can. They can come in the most little, sneaky, quiet ways. They, you can sit thinking you have this most quiet, peaceful sitting in this little, tiny whisper of an energy can go, oh, I just want this peace to last. You know? Just a little grasping can grow into a big, big piece of hindrance. So... There are many teachings about little adjustments we can make in our practice, but the Buddha's main instruction for these difficulties, these five categories, is the same instruction. This is always the same one instruction. Mindfulness. See it for what it is. Name it. Know it. Open. Once you know it, then you don't fight it. You open. Ah. Aversion. Ah. Self-hatred. <laughs> you don't try to fight it, but you do know it. You do meet it with mindfulness. So I want to clarify that Mara is not synonymous with hindrance. It's possible um, to have... For instance, it's possible to have sleepiness, and it's not, um, it's not Mara turns into Mara when we're hating ourselves for it or when we're giving into it in a way that would take us away from practice. So it's, not all hindrances are, are Mara. So Mara is this, this character or this archetype, this energy that wants to undermine our spiritual development. How dare he? In the sutras it says he wants to darken our understanding. He likes to do that. So you might be um, sitting and the sleepiness comes and 
you know, you go into, I hate myself, I hate myself for being sleepy. That is Mara, the hate myself part. Or you might be sitting there going, well, I'm really sleepy and dreamy, and I did nap all of yesterday and four sittings of today, and I'm not sick, but I think if I just take one more nap today, that really won't hurt anything. That is probably Mara, too. Mara in all his many faces. So Mara will be sly and will be tricky and will be a downright complete liar to get his way. He will lie inside your head. So this begins to sound a little sinister. I mean, it could begin to feel a little creepy, like, whoa, this is heavy. There's a booga booga after me, you know, which I felt a little this afternoon myself. But um, (laughs) it might help if we put this in some sort of everyday psychological terms, which is a very California thing to do. Not everybody would agree with this, but uh, I'll put it in these terms anyway. Our ego will do anything to survive. Just like us, it wants to live. It will lie. It will be totally dishonest. It will, um, the superego part of the ego will attack us, will be cruel. It will do whatever it takes to stay in control. Our beloved little ego. And the ego is on to something, actually. It can tell that genuine spiritual practice will begin to displace or dethrone the supremacy of the ego. And it doesn't like that. And it's deathly afraid of that. And it will try to stop that. So it doesn't even have to be formal spiritual practice sitting here like this. A lot of times women can recognize this in relationship because our lives are so relational. And we wherever a big opening might happen, a big opening of the heart, a big dissolving of boundaries, there can also be a big, you know, contraction, a big attack. The ego does not want to be dethroned. That's just everyday psychological language. And as we practice, and as we keep going, we begin to see our conditioning, we begin to see through it. It becomes more and more transparent. There's even parts of our conditioning that we begin to let go of. That's parts of the ego structure. And we begin over time to experience an essential nature that is far more vast and more dependable (laughs) more enduring than our beloved little ego. That is, the, that is the journey that does happen over time. So the ego will um, do what it can to interfere with this process. And, and a big part of what we're doing in our practice is we're learning the art of dealing with ego resistance or mara. So, what I want you to get is that we don't need to be afraid of Mara. 
In all the stories, Buddha was never once ever afraid of Mara. He didn't run off from Mara. He didn't even try to get rid of Mara. He just simply saw the truth. He saw what Mara was, and he would speak the truth about the situation. So it doesn't actually matter, from my point of view, if we see Mara as an inner psychological process or as an outer force. I don't think it matters. I think what matters is how we relate. It matters that we keep developing mindfulness instead of getting so entangled and identified with all this this stuff that can happen. It matters that we learn to meet ourselves with kindness. And um, we notice, and I'm sure people here already have experienced, that seeing Mara, seeing that this is judgment and not believing it, changes everything. So we can become interested, we can become amazed at times. We can also become assertive. Assertive. Uh, I'll tell you some stories about being assertive. This, um, when we're dealing with mythic um, images, which I consider these to be, um, it's interesting, it's really interesting to me, the different kind of things we can learn. And one of the things we can learn is and this is 2,500 years, and these stories are actually much older than 2,500 years, Um, when is this force, Mara, likely to show up? When might that happen? So you can think in your own life, now when when has that attack come in? When has that intense um, energy that's trying to make me stop opening to my partner or opening in my practice, when does that happen? tends to happen right before a big significant opening or a big retreat or a big important sitting or whatever, or right after. Or Mara would like to take advantages of times that we may be somehow vulnerable. So, um, like the examples from the sutras are like on a dark night when people could get scared, but for us it might be PMS. You know, or as Adrian was saying, you know, perimenopause or menopause. Uh, Mara could come in when we just lost our job, or when we're going through a divorce, or when we're sick. Times where we're more vulnerable is the chance for this energy to come in and, ah, here's my chance. Here's my chance to prove that I'm right. So there's a story that I love that this made its way through 2,500 years um, and all those monasteries with all those men um, writing this down and saying it, repeating it out loud. I love that this story made it to us. It's about one of the nuns that lived at the time of the Buddha and her name was Soma. She was entering a very deep meditation. Remember when Mara comes, oh, I don't want her to get into a deep meditation. She was entering a deep meditation and the thought came into her mind. Mara came into her mind. The goal is hard to reach. Hard even for sages. It cannot be won by a woman with whatever wisdom she may have. And this nun who was sitting there 
thought, this thought. And remember, this was 2,500 years ago in India, where this thought she just had is the belief. She's, the whole culture is conditioned not only to believe that women are inferior, but they are spiritually unable to attain enlightenment. But she's sitting there and goes beyond her conditioning and she says, this is surely Mara. What does gender matter if someone has, has concentration, insight, and comprehends the Dharma? So as soon as she said that, Mara vanishes, he slinks away. Because she recognized, this is Mara. And then she was assertive. She claimed the wisdom of her being that she knew was the truth, even if the whole culture said that's not how it is. She knew it from the inside. And when she did that, poof, it's gone. And we know this sounds familiar to us because there are um, so many forms of these doubts, these inner voices that come into our head and whisper sometimes so quietly There's such a background noise that we don't even hardly know it's being whispered. But, you know, I'm a woman or I'm a man. Nowadays, men think, oh, they come in these retreats, oh, gosh, I can't do this, I'm a man. You know, this is way too sensitive for me. I'm too young to practice. I've had people come, I'm too young. I've had people, I'm too old to start practice. You know, there's all these ways that the little voice inside will try to convince us, don't do this, give it up. So this story that comes to us across the ages um, helps us to know that we are like Soma, the nun. We can also develop this capacity to recognize what is happening, recognize Mara, and to claim a deeper truth, the truth of our being. I think it's this story I also like a lot because she's defending herself against that. She's defending her... She's saying women are just as good as men. You know, that's what she's saying. She's defending against all that conditioning. And this behind us, Ma Kali, is not Mara. This is part of what helps us defend against. This is the goddess. This is the fierce, wrathful force that will come in when something is way off and say, no. (coughs) I mean, this is Kali. She'll eat alive if necessary, but that's her job. So Kali is not Mara. She's part of what helps us. And sometimes we have to call on on of the Kali energy, the fierceness inside of us to help us defend. There's a another beautiful story out of the sutras that I like, and you'll see why in a minute, about the Buddha defending himself um, against Mara. He had hurt his foot, and so it says that he had harsh, racking pain, and so he had to lie down and sleep. And in his mind, a voice comes and says, What? Are you stupefied? that you're lying down? Why do you dream away intent on sleep? And the Buddha says, I'm not lying down because I'm stupefied. 
He was very clear on that. He said, I sleep out of compassion for all beings. I love that. First, he saw the truth, and then he named it. That was him speaking. And of course, at that point, Mara goes slinking away, as usual, disappointed. He claimed the truth, the deep truth. This isn't some form of laziness. I'm doing this out of compassion for all beings. As soon as he said it, Mara was gone. Hmm. Well, revolutionary if we really got this, wouldn't it be? So the point of this sutra, of course, is not to um, encourage us all to sleep our <laughs> selves through every day out of compassion for all beings, <laughs> which we can abuse anything, including that, that example. Um, but the point is to, is to encourage us to develop the ability to see when that little voice comes, to begin to discern that is that voice of that frightened, resistant ego. That is not the deep truth. And to learn to claim that truth, to defend ourselves against the attack by claiming the truth. So we can stop the attacks by just using the note. You know, let's say you're judging yourself. Oh, judging. And I remember when I first got this instruction to use the note judging, instead of to become entangled in it. So I would be sitting there and I would be breathing, I'd take maybe a breath. I must be doing this wrong. Then I'd note, judging. Okay, take a breath. This is really a stupid instruction. Judging. Take another breath. God, I can't believe how much I'm judging. Okay, judging. Okay. (laughs) Take a breath. Then I maybe take two or three, maybe four breaths. Wow, I'm really getting it now. I'm starting to improve. Judging, you know. I mean, at the first, when I first got this instruction, it seemed that's what I was doing. And I thought, I was just judging and judging and judging and judging. And it was awesome to see. And in a certain way, liberating to have that little note, this huge power. It means I see you, Mara. So sometimes we, we use that little note and, and poof, Mara vanishes, he slinks away. Sometimes we all know very well we use that little note and there remains the, the difficulty, the hindrance. So um, what we recommend, rather than, than staying entangled and trying to figure it out and believe in the story, is to drop out of the story line. Once you've made the note, and if it's not going away, if it's hanging on, um, let's say you're you're experiencing a lot of um, irritability at somebody near you, just really irritable. And it's a form of of Mara, you know, God, I hate this person, and they should leave, or whatever. Um, (laughs) At a certain point, after you've made the note, you've noticed it, then drop the story and go to the body sensation. What does this actually feel like as sensation in my body? Oh, there's tightness. Oh, there's this heat. Oh, it's anger. And once we're being present, once we're being mindful, we can sit with sensation, we can actually be mindful of anger or guilt or fear, whatever, 
we can hold these intense states. We don't have to stop any of them. We're not about repressing the stuff. We can learn to hold them just like you would hold a really upset, angry child. Just, here I am, I'm present, and, and you be present. And you can let immense amounts of, for instance, anger move through your body and mind mindfully, knowing that's anger. That means you can do it without being entangled. It's amazing. It's a totally different way to live life. You allow things to unfold. So, obviously, Mara has many, many faces, and the one I'm really honing in on tonight is this one about judgment and self-judgment. Because I mentioned the top ten tunes. In in, um, our community, well, I'll say in the Western culture, um, out of the top ten tunes, the number one hit, the, the really big one, is self-judgment. It's so unbelievably common and so toxic. And we've all heard about it. We hear a lot about it. Um, but the reason we keep mentioning it is that it's so pervasive and it has such an effect. It causes so much suffering. And sometimes it's very loud you know, it's just so clear. You're sitting there just hating yourself. You're worthless. You can't do it. But sometimes there's just a background sense that, you know, you don't even ever know that it formulates a thought. It's just, well, I'm, I'm never going to really be loved. I'm not lovable. You don't even know about it until you sit in meditation and feel it, this horrible, heavy feeling that's actually back there running like a little tape loop all the time. So it can be subtle. And we have, it, what's really amazing, and I've been, you know, not only doing my practice all these years, but I've been a psychotherapist for a zillion years and a meditation teacher, so I've, I've really witnessed and witnessed and witnessed, especially in women, the ruthlessness of this form of, of beating ourselves up. And it's as though we believe that if I do this, it's going to make me improve. Just to remind us something we already all know, it never helps. It doesn't help us to improve. It doesn't help our practice. The Buddha once said, hatred will never cease by hatred, but by love alone will it end. Which is true for us individually, with our inner world. It's true. In the outer world, it's just what's called a universal truth. He said, this is a timeless truth. So, we practice seeing clearly what's so, and we really begin to practice meeting our moments with not only awareness, but kindness. Hafez, who I mentioned earlier, says, habits are human nature, why not cultivate some that will mint gold? Yeah, so the cultivation of, of compassion toward ourself instead of judgment will mint gold. And I so deeply hope that you'll, that you'll really take this home and I mean, practice it every day because there will come times in every life where you're so grateful you have that under your belt, that you did that practice. Um, we all, there are times we all really need it. And to the degree we've 
gain access to that aspect of our nature, we can lean into it when we need it. Or it leans into us sometimes. I'll tell you a story about about it leaning into me one day. Um, I was in Thailand practicing at Ajahn Jimnian's forest monastery. It's way out in the middle of the rainforest. I was the only English-speaking person there other than my husband, and we were on silence, so I hadn't talked to him for a couple of weeks. We were Most of the meditation, there wasn't a big retreat going on, it's just the life of the monastery. We were in little huts and practicing most of the time alone. And It was hot and it was really hot. <laughs> it was so intensely hot and humid. And it was third-worldy. You know, if you've been to Thailand, you go, well, Thailand's not third-world. Well, out at the end of the road and out at the back of the monastery, it's third-world-ish. And it's... Um, I was doing fine, actually, for a few weeks with all this, the noises and the bugs and the smells. And then um, I was actually having a really profound retreat, which is probably part of what got Mara to come. And then one day, a few weeks into this retreat, sitting in the little hut, I was just intensely attacked by Mara. Intensely. When I'm telling this story, partly because I remember it so vividly, as maybe um, two of maybe the most uncomfortable, horrible hours I ever remember. Um, It was that difficult. And it's hard for me to even tell you, because it was an inner state of such upheaval. But um, I was uncomfortable with everything. Suddenly, everything, everything was so unsettling for me. And um, everything was wrong. Everything out there was wrong, and especially everything here in myself. I was wrong for being there. It was the wrong practice. I had made the wrong choices. I was a wrong person. It was, it was so deeply painful to feel so separate um, from everything, including myself. I was this wimpy American tourist. I was whatever I was. I was just, I mean, it was really kind of an inner violence. And it partly seemed so violent because I been in such an open place. Um, and it's hard to, to explain exactly where it was. It was really, um, I couldn't, I've been practicing already 20 some years, but I, I couldn't get a thread on it. I was just, was really tumbling in this ungrounded and chaotic and painful place. I just know for sure I hated myself and everything else. Um, and I felt like there was no exit. And at a certain point, when I started thinking, um, I should leave the monastery. I should go out. There's some really nice beaches in Thailand. I should go there. When I started really planning for that, um, something in me went, this is Mara. You know, I've, uh, wake up, Deborah. Th- you're in it. You're really, right now, you've heard about this. This is it. This is trying to stop you. So it kind of uh, brought my attention to say, okay, let's sort of get a little more mindful here. I started trying to name, you know, okay, this is judgment, self-judgment. I brought my awareness into my body. And when I finally just got inside, instead of spinning, spinning in this mind, and I got into my body, I felt like the whole core of me, up and down the center, was just quivering with fear. I was, it was just... And I just felt so, like there was nothing to hold on to, um, nothing familiar... I felt like I had no skin. I felt 
utterly vulnerable in the universe and bereft. And, and I chose to sit and experience this. I, and it was hard. I mean, this I wasn't easy. I was sitting, sweating with this fear and, and, and feeling of intense vulnerability. And at one point I was so sort of unglued. I, I just remember this little hut and, you know, there's nothing to sit on there, so you're sitting on the cement floor. And I was sobbing and I was shaking and I was praying and I was, I was really out of it. And um, in the middle of this thing, I began to feel... The only way I can describe it is like a sun, and the sun had rays, and it was warm, golden compassion. It was like bursting through the denseness of my body. I wasn't making this happen. I had just been being present with my body, and this warm, these rays of compassion were coming through my body. I could feel them. It was so amazing. But I actually, at that point, was still so contracted, I didn't allow myself to feel the compassion for myself. But I began feeling it for any being that would ever feel as disconnected as I was feeling. Anyone who would ever felt that bereft, compassion, mercy to them. And I started thinking of all these people in Thailand and throughout Asia and all the world. And I, oh, there's all this compassion. And eventually... The compassion, these, these sunbeams were going through my body and through the world. And I was sitting there, just these tears of compassion. And eventually the compassion got to this little ego, trembling ego mass of Deborah. <laughs> you know, beloved little Deborah. And even little freaked out Deborah was completely held in this in this radiant warmth of compassion. And I just sat for a long time. This compassion was becoming, is expanding and very boundless in its nature. And as it got more and more expanded, the little Deborah disappeared into this compassion. So there was this long time where what was left was just this open, clear, most sacred space of, of emptiness that was totally filled with connection and love for everything. And it was a very profound and you know, powerful experience. I had changed inside so deeply, and the outer conditions, the heat and the smells, of course they hadn't changed a bit, but inside there had been this dying, and and what was reborn out of just dying was not little me. And um, it was one of those, and this was for the time being, of course, I got reborn. (laughs) Little me did come back within a couple days, but... um, That's one of those times where the arrows of Mara turned into the flower petals. And um, one of the most important things about this experience was that in a few days when I began to experience more ordinary um, consciousness, I didn't judge it. I just relaxed with it. 
it, it was so clear to me that our journey, our life includes expansion and contraction, and that's okay. It's all just, it's all unfolding. So there was a trust. And it was clear that um, Mara, Mara is not expansions or contractions. Mara is our reaction to expansion or contraction. So it turns out that Mara's arrows can be some of our most profound teachers. The arrows can turn into the flower petals because we have to reach so deep to deal with them. We have to go beyond our little self. We go beyond our little ego self. And then things turn into flower petals. So Mara's um, troubles and temptations and traumas and dramas strengthen our mindfulness. They cause us to strengthen our mindfulness. And they call us to practice calling on and trusting this deeper wisdom of our heart. Deeper truth than these little voices that just want to run and run. So in our practice, uh, we learn when desires and uh, judgments come, we learn to be mindful of them without being so entangled. And when fear comes, we learn, or anger, we can be present with this. We don't have to become it. We don't have to lose connection with our being because fear or anger or sadness is running through our system. And we can learn to meet ourselves in love. We can cultivate that ability. We learn over and over. This happens by thousands, at least in my case, thousands and thousands, millions of moments of just practicing, embracing our trembling humanness with compassion. We practice that. And eventually, what we discover, it becomes an unshakable certainty that love and awareness are more powerful than Mara. So I'll finish tonight with a Hafiz part of a Hafiz. The place where you are right now, God circled on a map for you. Get it? Even if it's a hindrance, even if it's a contraction. Wherever your eyes and arms and heart can move against the earth and sky, the beloved has bowed there. I could tell you a priceless secret about your real worth, dear pilgrim. Any unkindness to yourself, 
any confusion about others will only veil the grace, the love, the sublime freedom that the divine is always offering to you. So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.